So I grew up uh, in a broken, violent home very far from the Lord. This is the Into the Light podcast, where we ask experts, hear authors, and listen to stories about pornography, sexuality, and the Christian life. This podcast is part of the teaching documentary, also called Into the Light. I'm your host, John Michael Bout, and I hope that through this conversation, you meet Jesus, find healing, and have your honest questions answered. Hey, this is John Michael. And I'm Jacob Volk. We recorded this podcast on a film trip for the Into the Light documentary. In the documentary, Heath is taking on Chapter 3, which is all about practical counseling truths and understanding your heart when it comes to pornography. In this podcast conversation, Heath shares his own story of trauma and abuse and answers questions about accountability and getting to the heart of the issue. Honestly, Heath's own story about his abuse and how that made him a better pastor was fascinating to me. It was such an incredible testimony. Here's the conversation with Heath Lambert. I hope you enjoy it. Heath Lambert, thank you for joining me on this podcast. Um, today, I just wanted to ask you a bit about uh, where grace meets radical steps, accountability, and just kind of talking about digging in underneath what's there with pornography. Um, but just before getting into it, can you first sh share who you are, where you are in your ministry now, and then we'll kind of rewind back from that. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I am a pastor at uh, First Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida. I have been in ministry for my entire adult life. I started out in pastoral ministry and served several churches as a pastor before I became a professor at Southern Seminary where I was um, for about 10 years uh, as a professor. And uh, in the midst of that, I also led the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors and uh, left those jobs being a professor and an executive director to come be the senior pastor at First Baptist. Right. And did you, you went to Southern Baptist and got trained there and then went on staff there or did you get trained somewhere else? That's correct. I, so I got my undergrad at a different institution, but I did my Master of Divinity and PhD uh, at Southern Seminary. And while I was uh, in the PhD program, uh, I got hired as a professor. So I had some overlap where I was at once a student and a faculty member. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I was um, a two-time graduate of Southern and a, uh, I actually still am a faculty member. That's not my full-time job, but uh, I go and teach when I when I can, which is not as often as it used to be, but still love Southern and happy to teach when I can get up there. Okay, I was gonna, I was gonna ask you if you're still teaching there. Yeah, still teaching there. Mm -hmm. And then you're married with kids. Yep, I'm married to Lauren, and we have three kids. Our, uh, we got a lot of movement in the summer with birthdays. So our oldest, Carson, is 16 and about to turn 17. Uh, our daughter, Chloe, she just turned 14. And then our youngest is 11, and he turns 12 here in about three weeks. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if you could just kind of uh, rewind your, I guess, your story. This is where you've ended up now. Mm -hmm. um, and if you could share a bit about what life was like growing up, and then also especially how you came to know Jesus. Yeah. So I grew up uh, in a broken violent home very far from the Lord. So I think, I think I was in church a dozen times uh, in my childhood. Uh, I went to church with a grandmother here or there or with a friend or something like that. But church was not a regular part of our upbringing. In fact, uh, my mom was actually opposed to church. Her mom was very religious and so kind of dragged him to church and it was all very legalistic. You, you do this because this is what we do. And we sing these songs because this is what we do. And you're going to get a Bible because this is what we do. And you don't fall asleep. And it was just very do this, don't do that. And so my mom took that as Christianity. And so she was not going to do that to her kids. So it was, it was a matter of conviction in my house that Jesus, the Bible, church, Christianity was not a part of what we were doing. Uh, my mom also was um, a very unhappy woman. She was sexually promiscuous, fell in love with a man she was committing adultery with, um, and uh, 
began a long, slow process of separating from the man she was married to. Uh, while that was happening, uh, she got pregnant by uh, this guy she was committing adultery with. Uh, my dad knew there was no physical way that uh, he could have gotten her pregnant because they weren't doing that uh, anymore. Um, and so she got pregnant trying to trap this guy uh, that she thought she loved and thought would leave his wife and be with her if she had his kid. Well, uh, she got a couple of surprises. Uh, one is that she wasn't just pregnant with one kid. She was pregnant with two, me and my twin brother. Uh, two, uh, he was not about to leave his wife uh, for her even if she had his uh, his children. So um, uh, so that's the way we were born. It was, it was devastating for my mom. Uh, she really honestly, and she told me this later in life after she became a Christian or as she was becoming a Christian actually, uh, that she just resented me and my brother because she never wanted us. We were a, we were a maneuver to try to get this guy. And so when, when she didn't get him, she was kind of stuck with these two kids uh, and she didn't have a man and she had these two boys. And so she started drinking. She was a drunk for almost, well, for my entire childhood. Uh, she was a drunk. She was violently abusive. She tried to kill me and my brother a couple of different times in a couple of different ways. Um, uh, apart from those kind of shocking things, it was also just a very cold, distant, no love uh, we spent time in foster care, spent a lot of time in custody battles with her and my my dad, who was the man she was married to that didn't happen to be in the room when we were conceived, but uh, he loved us from before we were born and his name is on our birth certificate because he put it on there um, and uh, always fought to love us, always fought to protect us, but that was not easy for him uh, to do just because of the way the custody battles worked out. Uh, so I grew up in a bad situation, in a devastating situation, in a really dangerous and, and at times risk of a deadly situation. Um, and in the midst of it, uh, you know, I always knew there was a God. In fact, I was scared to death about it. Um, I don't know if I'm giving you more information than you want. No, this is great. Uh, but my granny uh, she came in one time and the house was a mess and mom was drunk and we were hungry and it was horrible. And, uh, she said, you boys aren't living here. You're just surviving. And I just hope God doesn't send you to hell. And I thought, well, you know what? I hope he doesn't either. Uh, I mean, that sounds like a really bad deal. And I'm telling you, it scared me to death. I was probably about seven. I mean, just absolutely petrified me. And I can remember lying awake at night trying to imagine in my mind how long forever would be. And I would think for as long as I could think, and I'd be like, man, forever's longer than that. Forever's longer than that. And I was like, that's how long I'm going to be in hell. But I didn't know the way to escape that. I, I mean, she didn't give me any gospel message. There was no grace. It was just, man, I hate that you're going to hell kind of thing. Um, so fast forward, that was life. Uh, fast forward uh, my freshman year of high school, uh, some friends, some people get in with a bad crowd. I got in with a really good crowd. I got in with some Christians and they invited me to come to their church. And then they invited me to come on this youth trip. And so we couldn't afford, I didn't have any money to go on a trip. Um, but a dear woman named Sue Baumgartner let me know that my way had been paid for by somebody in the church. I later found out it was her. Uh, and she was on the trip and uh, she while we were on the trip, it was uh, February 20th, 1994. And I was uh, looking out a window and uh, she came into the room where I was and she told me that I was a sinner and that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and that if I would turn from sin and trust in him, I'd be forgiven. And I looked out the window. It was this cold day in Kentucky. I looked out the window. It rained the day before and the mud had frozen. So I'm looking at this tree with no leaves surrounded by frozen mud. And looking at that tree, uh, I believed in Jesus. And uh, um, I, I realized in a powerful way that he had been caring for me. I mean, all these nights that I'd laid awake and I would even pray, Lord, I don't want to go to hell. Lord, I don't want to go to hell. Lord, I don't want to go to hell. And on uh, February 20th, 1994, he answered my prayer and saved me. And I've uh, walked with him ever since. That's amazing. And how do you, I'm just thinking the, a story like that, how does it affect the way you're living now to have grown up in a childhood like that? Yeah. 
it just, and I guess how did that transition even just for yourself and your brother? So I think there's a couple of ways that I think about that um, impacting me. First of all, I'm eager for people to know. I used to not talk about um, my abusive background. The reason I didn't is because I can't tell the story without saying bad things about other people. So when I tell the story, I'm saying bad things about my mom. I'm saying uh, bad things about this other guy whose name I've never shared publicly, uh, but I don't want to embarrass him. He had a wife and he's got legitimate kids and I'm not trying to make anybody's life difficult. I also had a dad, my dad, that has, is the man I always call my dad. I couldn't talk about it. It was too hurtful for him uh, to hear what we were dealing with when he wasn't around. And so it was just too hurtful for me to, to talk about it. But a couple of things happened in a short window of time. Uh, one, my mom and my dad died within two years of one another. And so just really quickly, I was without parents. My mom got saved uh, towards the end of her life. We didn't know it, but she got saved about five years before she died. Of course, you don't know when you're going to die, but we now know uh, she spent the last five years of her life as a Christian. <clears throat> and about a week or so before she died, it was one of the last things she said. She was uh, she was dying of cancer and was having trouble talking. And she grabbed my hand and she pulled it to her chest. And she said, Heath, I want you to tell people that uh, I was different. I want you to tell people what Jesus did for me. She grew up we were in this small town. Everybody knew my mom was the woman who slept around. Everybody knew my mom was the drunk. Everybody knew what the story with those twins was. I mean, it was just a small town in Kentucky. And late in her life, having only lived a few years, most people didn't know what had happened to her and how Jesus had changed her. And so she said, she made me promise that I would tell the story. And, uh, and then when my dad died and it wouldn't be hurtful to him, then it just became clear to me that uh, um, this is the life the Lord has given me and this is the story that He used to save me and the story that He used to uh, uh, even to call me into ministry in a way. Um, and so I tell the story not to be sensational. I tell the story not because I, I actually don't feel broken over it. I don't feel sad. I try to never tell the story unless I can very quickly say the good things that Jesus did. I don't think it's helpful for people who've been victims of abuse to just always be, uh, look, what you intended for evil, the Lord intended for good. And eventually you have to get to a point where you believe that or you don't. And so, and I believe it and I don't want to, uh, uh, I want to give honor to the Lord for my story and the good things that he did in it. So, so I, I don't feel like a broken individual. I feel happy. I'm thankful for my life. I'm thankful for all the things that the Lord did. I wouldn't change anything about it. I'm glad I don't have to relive it, but I wouldn't want to change anything about it. Um, and, and I think that what it has to do with my life right now, apart from just receiving my story as my story and part of the grace of God in my life, I think it helps me as a pastor in the one sense and as a husband and a father in, in, in another sense. As a pastor, um, look, the Lord, I just see before I was even saved, the Lord was showing me heartbreak. He was showing me pain. He was showing me the fear and the terror of abuse. We're living in a season right now, the last couple of years culminating right up to the week here that we're talking where there's just all these revelations of sexual abuse and mistreatment everywhere you go in religious institutions, in Hollywood, on Capitol Hill. Men do it, women do it, conservatives do it, liberals do it, religious people do it, secular people do it. Everybody's hurting everybody right now. And I have never wondered what it's like when you've talked to somebody who's been mistreated by somebody in authority. I've never wondered what it's like uh, to be scared uh, to go home, to be scared that somebody who looks one way out there in front of people is treating you differently and more terrifyingly uh, uh, in private than they are out in front of everybody. So um, I, uh, I think the Lord, before I knew Jesus, was working to help make me like Jesus. Jesus comes in, He's gentle, and He doesn't squelch flaming wicks, and He doesn't break bruised reeds. And I think the Lord was preparing uh, to help make me a better pastor, uh, having experienced a lot of pain and a lot of brokenness in my own life. As a husband and a father, um, I probably think about this every day. If not every day, then, uh, then it's close, uh, six times a week. Uh, 
I don't want my wife and my kids to have the kind of home that I grew up in. So uh, I really think hard about loving and caring for my wife. I really think hard about loving and caring for my kids. Uh, if they were here, they'd be the first to tell you that their husband and their dad is not perfect. I know how to sin like everybody else does. Um, but I really want to be a gentle man. I, I pray every day, Lord, make me a loving, kind, gentle, gracious, caring man with a sweet spirit. Uh, help me to be a loving, kind, gentle, gracious, caring man with a sweet spirit with my wife. And help me to be a loving, kind, gentle, gracious, caring man with a sweet spirit with my husband. And help me to be that kind of man with my church and with the people that I meet. Um, and, and I want every day to put my wife's face in my hands and my kid's face in my hands. And I want to say, hey, I love you. You know I love you, right? You know I love you more than anybody in the world. Yes, I know it. Um, and so I think about the home that I came from and I want the home that I'm living in now to be the opposite of that. So that's probably more information than you wanted when you asked the question, but there it no, is. No, not, not mm. at all. I, I'm just, I guess I'm just struck at both how you're saying the sovereignty of God coming out in seeing a big picture mm -hmm. pulling back and how that's coming out good now. I guess, how did you forgive in that like especially because it sounds like you were able to forgive yeah. sooner than just you know like last last week you were able to forgive yeah um how did you get to that point when you didn't have the bigger picture st stuff that you're able to testify to now and yeah praise the lord for it the, you know the um the first step in it it was hard it, you know i'm 42 so my abuse stopped when i was 12 or so 13, somewhere in there, 12, 13. Um, so that's 30 years, you know? Uh, so it's not like at 13, I was like, God, I totally trust in yourself. <laughs> like that, that's not the way it happened. Uh, so I was, I hated my mother, hated her uh, for years. I got saved when I was 14. Um, and the first sin that the Lord confronted me with uh, as, a, as a saved freshman in high school was um, uh, was lying. I was a liar. Lied all the time. Uh, the second sin uh, that the Lord uh, confronted me with was lust. Uh, and the third uh, sin that the Lord confronted me with was my hatred for my mother. Maybe hatred for mom was second and lust was third. It's kind of hard to remember back that far. But those were the big three in my first year or so of, of my Christian life. Um, and um, my mom was a toughie. Uh, I mean, I really hated her. She was, we did not have a good relationship then. She was a, not a Christian at all. In fact, she was more committed uh, against religion at that point than she was even when I was a little kid. Um, and so she, we did not have a good relationship. She did not like me. I did not like her. We were mean to one another. Um, but I was reading Matthew 18. Good night. It was my sophomore year of high school. So maybe, maybe mom and hating her was the third thing and lust was the second. It was my sophomore year of high school. I was home from school. I was sitting on this ugly purple bedspread on my ugly bed. And I was reading the Bible and I read Matthew 18. You know, unforgiving servant. And this guy's choking people and because he doesn't forgive, he gets tossed in prison. And Jesus says, so also will my heavenly Father do to every one of you if you don't forgive your brother from the heart. And it got me right in between the eyeballs. I knew Jesus was, t I didn't know Greek. Uh, I didn't know how to do exegesis. I didn't know a squatty thing. I was a sophomore in high school, been a Christian less than a year. And I knew Jesus was talking about me and my relationship with my mother. And I was furious. <laughs> I was really angry. I, listen, it w that was, that moment on my bed was the first time and the last time in my Christian life where I really believed Jesus was taking something from me. I believed that my hatred of my mother was mine. She earned that. Like, I mean... I mean, I've been beat over the head with mop handles till I bled and passed out. Uh, I have been shot at with a 38. I have run away from, I've been in foster care. I've had frostbite up to my knees running away from her. And it's like, she was horrible. She was terrible. She slept around. I mean, she was awful. Um, you, you just can't even believe the parade of men in our house and what we, it was terrible. It was horrible. Uh, she earned 
my hatred. And you're telling me I got to forgive? And I was angry about it. And I spent, I don't know how much time, trying to just figure out how to adjust to not being angry with the Lord for taking this away from me. And finally I realized, okay, well, something along the lines of you're God and I'm not. And I got to, if you tell me I got to forgive, I'm going to forgive. And I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know what it meant to forgive her. And so what I decided I would do is I decided, well, I'll be nice. That's what, that was enough to kill me right there. I mean, we did not have a good relationship. And so she would say and do provocative things. And I was tempted to say and do provocative things. But I, what I had was, I will be kind. I will be nice. I will try to say kind things to this woman. I will try to say kind things about her. And that about killed me. And it took me probably a couple years to get familiar with that. Over the course of my life moving into my 20s, I grew to understand more of what forgiveness really meant. And, and most importantly, I do think Joseph was really helpful. Joseph, who also experienced abuse from his family members and was wrongly accused of sexual abuse and spent time in prison and was horribly mistreated. And, and you fast forward and the Lord uses all of that to get him into a place of service. And you get to the point where his brothers who tried to kill him and threw him in a hole and sold him into slavery, they think their number's up and he's about to punish them. And like, you know, uh, dad actually told us, you didn't hear about this, but dad actually told us that you're supposed to be nice to us and take care of us. And he said, guys, calm down. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And, and the Bible says, so he dealt kindly with them. And so eventually you do have to get to a place where you go, you know what? Sinful people do sinful things. That's the world we're living in. I wish it weren't so. I would have loved to have a childhood protected by a white picket fence and a golden retriever and laughs and giggles. And I would have loved that. It didn't happen. Uh, the Lord knows that. Uh, sinful people made a bunch of decisions that were wrong. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And he was, while my mom was being she was in her own hell. She was in her own prison. Uh, she didn't know the Lord either, so she was doing as good as any of us can, which is not much apart from the grace of God. Um, and, uh, you know, um, the Lord was using all of that horrible stuff to make me a Christian. He was making me a pastor. He was making me a dad. He was making me a husband. He was making me a better friend. Um, and it's not mine to question uh, the kiln that the Lord uses to uh, make his uh, vessels. It's mine to trust him and, uh, and uh, be thankful that uh, there, but for his grace, go I. How did that lead to um, writing your book, Finally Free? Yeah. Did, was, that, was that connected at all? Or is it just kind of that's a topic that you felt there needed to be good writing on? Yeah, so it's, it is loosely connected. So a couple, one connection would be that just one of the reasons I went into ministry is because I just wanted to help people. Like there's something hardwired into me where I just, I love helping people. I want to help. I wanted to do that. Uh, and so people who view pornography certainly need help. Um, more immediately to the book was while I'm living this life, part of the, part of the story of my childhood was the abuse of my mother. Uh, but another part of the story of my childhood is because my mom was a drunk. So she was a drunk and she'd get angry and abusive and then she'd pass out. And so there's a whole other part of my childhood where me and my twin brother were these little rednecks in eastern Kentucky running around with our bare feet. I mean, terrorizing creeks and trees and abandoned houses and barns and lighting things on fire and doing whatever in the whole wide world we wanted. I mean, we would just, I mean, I had a remarkably free childhood in, uh, in one sense with an incredible amount of supervision. I, I supervised my 16 year old today more than my mom supervised us at seven. I mean, we were doing whatever we wanted. Um, and in the midst of all of that, I had a, um, a creepy friend of our family uh, give me a, a VHS cassette, if anybody knows what in the world that is. Uh, that's, all, that's the way you watched movies back in the uh, 1980s, uh, was a VHS cassette of pornography. And uh, uh, you couldn't 
never, I don't think, snuggle that, smuggle that kind of contraband into my house today, but we were able to do whatever we wanted uh, in our house then. And I watched that video as an eight-year-old, was eight, uh, and saw my first pornographic movie. And it was this explosion of, on the one hand, guilt, because Romans chapter two says your guilty conscience accuses you. And my eight-year-old conscience knew I was looking at sinful sex. But the other part of the explosion was I was hypnotized by it. I thought this was wonderful. So it's, I knew it was horrible, and I knew it was wonderful. Uh, and uh, I honestly, I was hooked right then. Now, in the kindness of God, eight-year-olds couldn't get pornography very easily back in the 1980s. And we wound up feeling guilty, and we destroyed the video. And so then there was no more where that came from. Um, but my childhood, even though I didn't get to see pornography very much, um, whenever I had the opportunity, I took it. And so one of the kindnesses of God was having me be born in the 1970s instead of the 2000s. Because if I had grown up, when a lot of people right now are growing up, I think I'd probably be single alone and staring at pornography in a one-bedroom apartment someplace right now. Um, but so I, I felt a close attachment to pornography in, the, in, the, in a very sinful sense. And, uh, and it was a problem. I, I longed to see it. I wanted to see it. Um, and I needed to break free from that. Um, and so, uh, so the book uh, is me wanting to help people, but it also is in a way that maybe a lot of folks don't appreciate uh, it's more autobiographical than you might think because a lot of the strategies that I talk about in the book are strategies that I use to help break free. I feel like that comes through with how practical uh, it is in, in many aspects of it. This actually just kind of connects into uh, what I was wanting to ask about after this. So your book throughout is talking about the transforming power of grace and how mm -hmm. grace undergirds all these different things. And right. that's kind of the underlying thing for every single one of your chapters in, in there. The transforming power of grace also is paired up with the radical measures of right. uh, cutting off access and all these other different uh, just practical steps. But how should we be thinking about that as Christians where it's we want to give God all the glory for change and recognize that it is Him who changes the heart yeah. while also not having, I guess, like this double standard perspective on like, okay, we're going to say that God changes us, but at the same time, the thing that really does the work is these radical measures that we're doing over yeah. here. Like, how, do you, how do you think and teach that so that they're helping each other, not pulling away? Yeah. So actually what you do, what you've just done is you've put your finger on a real burden I have in the book. So you could look at the book and you could say, wow, this is somebody who um, really cares about helping people with pornography. And that's true. Uh, that's the main thing. But there's another burden in the book. There's several, but there's another, there's another burden in the book. Um, and the most significant one after pornography is my troubled spirit. Uh, certainly at the time that I was, that I was writing the book, uh, of faulty ways that Christians talk about grace. Uh, and so you've got some people who, uh, they only talk about behavior. They only talk about practice. And that is unhelpful because we are not legalists. We are not behaviorists. And that's true because we're not machines. So it's, it's unhelpful to talk about uh, human struggles in a way that make it about do this and don't do that. But there's another error. And it was, uh, it was the error that started to concern me when the pendulum swings away from only talking about behavior, you can swing to the other extreme and only talk about grace. And at the time I was writing the book, there were a lot of Christian leaders with big platforms, famous names, actually a couple of them aren't even in ministry anymore, uh, but they were always talking about grace this and grace that, and I love grace. I'm not gonna demean grace for anything in the world, but they would add to that statement, as soon as you talk about what we do and what we don't do, you're not talking about grace anymore. And I was really troubled by that. And so there, there has been with Christians of various and of opposite camps, a divorce between grace and works. Uh, and honestly, on, on my reading, a pretty, a pretty straightforward reading of the Bible makes it impossible 
uh, to divorce those two things. And so in, uh, uh, in uh, Philippians uh, chapter 2, it says, uh, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So, so Paul's commanding me to do some things with regard to my salvation. And in fact, he's commanding me to work. Yikes, why is the Apostle Paul telling me to work when, uh, when that's not supposed to be the Christian message? But that's what he says right there in the Bible. You work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, but then comes verse 13. It says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you've got this, this is just one verse we could talk about a lot more. You've got these verses all through the New Testament. Um, well, you know, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. We're saved by grace through faith, apart from works, so that no one can boast. But then you get to verse 10, and we're supposed to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, so this divorce that Christians want to put between works and grace is not a New Testament divorce. Uh, what the New Testament teaches is your works are crucial. In fact, your works are so crucial, you'll go to hell because of your works, because you don't do the good works. But what happens is in grace, God sends His Son Jesus to do all of the good works that you can't do on your own. And He dies on the cross to pay for your bad works, and He rises from the grave to demonstrate that the whole bargain went through. The funds were received, and now everything's good. And so what happens is He gives you grace, not just to be forgiven, but He gives you grace to do the very works that He has commanded you to do. And so, we can't do works on our own. God gives us His grace to do it, and now we do those works. And when we do the works, we never get credit for them because we're doing what His grace empowered us to do. So the book is about, with a very specific issue of pornography and with some very specific applications of radical measures and uh, these kinds of things, accountability and all that kind of thing, it's, it's a case study in how grace impels and motivates um, works. Hmm. That's so helpful. Just even thinking about how it doesn't then lead to a prideful freedom. Right. Because uh, yeah. the possibility of getting fr a freedom, but strong arming, doing it yourself, leading to like, yeah. That's right. So you, you think about Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, um, he's talking about, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and give glory to you. No. Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so our good works must happen. You have to do them. And so do I. You go to hell if you don't. Uh, but when you do good works, uh, it's because Jesus has intervened and so with His grace. And so your good works redound not to your glory, but to the glory of your Father in heaven. That is so helpful. Just like now applying this into, uh, let's say you had someone approach you struggling with pornography. Mm -hmm. When you're counseling them, I guess, what order and how do you help them see that relationship with like just initially coming there? Do you start with uh, the grace and then go to the, or obviously yeah. the interaction, but. It depends. It depends on who you're talking to. So you could imagine a person who uh, it depends on which sort of the of the which side of the divorce you're on in the Christian scheme. So if you if you're talking to a person who is I'm doing this and I'm doing that and I've got accountability that I'm meeting with every week and I put these protections on my computer and uh, whatever I'm doing all this stuff. Why am I not working? Well, hey, let's talk about let's talk about how the works that change you, the works that really make you different. Let's talk about how they start. And they have to start with Jesus. And so if you're doing good works apart from grace, you're going to die. You're not going to change. You're going to make it worse. And so let's back up and let's see how we can encounter Jesus in a bold and a fresh and in a powerful way. And then let's work from grace to works. On the other end, if you've got the other person and they're like, well, grace, 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 grace. And it's not about what I do and free from the law. You know, I'm, I don't have to do any of these things. Um, uh, for, what's the song? Free from the law, blessed condition. I can sin all I want and still have remission. You know, <laughs> uh, don't tell me what to do. Uh, that kind of person, why are you still stuck? Well, because grace 
If grace isn't doing what it's supposed to do, which is making you different, then we need to work on the practicalities. What what behaviors do you need to add to grace? What uh, not not that it's grace plus our behavior, but grace leads to changed behavior. And if it doesn't, we need to see where the breakdown is. Grace is not the grace you're pursuing and the grace you think you're believing in isn't the grace that Jesus points you to. And so for the sort of all grace side of the equation, we need to say, hey, what uh, what practical steps do we need to take uh, so that uh, uh, so that you're able to, as the Apostle Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Right. Hmm. And then in the first example you gave, how does someone, I guess when they're like, I want to believe, in the transforming power of grace. I'm trying to do the practical steps, but how do I specifically know where I'm going wrong? I'm just looking for like the practical thing, someone listening to this who is in that place, mm -hmm. they're trying to take the right steps and they want to believe in the transforming power of grace. I guess, how do you help someone in that situation see where, the, where it's falling apart? So it will be at a very specific point uh, that you have to try to figure out. Uh, and that's going to be, it's, it's a hard question to answer in the abstract because it's going to happen right. in, in, in time and space. Uh, so just to give you an example, um, uh, let's say that uh, we're talking about a guy who every afternoon when he comes home, he's, he, maybe it's a student who's home before his parents get home, or it's a dad who's home before the family gets home, and he's got a two-hour window before anybody's going to be there, and he's tempted to use that time to indulge in pornography. Well, that's two hours in his life we're really concerned about. We need to lock that up. So uh, we need. I need you. We're going to figure out all sorts of ways to do that. We need to nail down the devices that he's using to look at pornography so that he can't do it. We need to have a system so that as soon as he's tempted, he's calling me. Uh, well. Let's say at our next get-together, uh, he sits down and he says, hey, you know, three times this week, before my wife got home, before my parents got home, I used that time to look at pornography. Well, why? I mean, we knew this was happening. We knew we needed to lock this up. Uh, we knew that um, you were supposed to call me. Why didn't you do that? Uh, his answer to that question is going to help you understand what the problem is. And so, let, again, on another hypothetical, let's say, well... I was ashamed to call you and ask for help. Okay, so we've got a fear of man, pride problem. And so what we need to do is where we need gospel grace is in that moment. It's not just, Lord, forgive me for looking at pornography. It's, Lord, uh, forgive me for loving my reputation more than I love righteous, righteousness. Forgive me for loving what I want to do more than loving what I said I would do, which is call my brother who's helping me with this. And so it'll, it'll get, you'll have to identify it in a case-specific person-to-person way. Right. Does that, that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. I guess I'm trying to think of how to ask that in a way that someone who is there and doesn't have that kind of counsel, like counselor relationship can be applying that to themselves. So I think it's James 1, 13 to 15. So the death, which is the fruit of sin, backs up to sinful behavior, backs up to the desires that are in the heart. And the way we identify the desires of the heart are what was I wanting? So when I did that thing, what was I wanting so badly that I sinned to get it and sinned when I, sinned when I didn't get it? Right. And with the honest, self-reflective answer to that question will help you know where you need to apply gospel grace. Yeah, that's that's very helpful. Just something that popped in my mind right now is for someone who's not, um, I guess, self-reflective or they're maybe newer to the whole aspect of looking in and trying to analyze their own motives, what do you recommend someone like think something like journaling? What do how do you practically help someone self-analyze those things? Yeah, um, so the a couple things you know so maybe maybe journaling. I think, honestly, if you prayed through Matthew 23, it'd be a very big help because Jesus in Matthew 23 is identifying hypocrites and he is letting people know that there is a difference between who you present yourself to be and who you really are. There is a difference between what you're doing and what you're wanting. Uh, and so I think you could, um, I think you could pray through Matthew 23 and honestly, 
if the kind of person that's like that that you're describing that's listening to this right now, uh, I would honestly say, hey, if you're not in a situation where you're having a conversation with somebody like what I just described, one of the easiest things to do is fix that. Send a text message right now. Make a phone call right now. Uh, fix that. Like none of us can do it on our, on our own. Uh, but even before you meet with that person, even before you talk with them, if you would get on your face right now, and if you would, I mean face on the ground with your heart open before the Lord, and if you would say, God, would you please show me my sin? Would you please show me where I need to be different? Would you please show me where you need to change me? God is just going to answer that prayer. I'm not, I don't know that he'll answer it in the first five seconds. He actually just might do it. He did that to me last week. Uh, but but if, you, if that is the attitude of your heart and you are pleading with the Lord to show you your sin, he will absolutely uh, answer that question. And so you should, after you right now, text somebody or call somebody, you should right now get on your face and just ask God to show me if there's any wicked way in me. And if you're looking at porn, there is. So uh, show me what it is, yeah. and he will. No, that's so helpful. It's, and just that's the practical things too that looking for like when we're talking broadly, and sometimes that's the difficult thing with uh, books or things like conversations like this, to then also be like, that is so practical. That's the yeah. next step someone yeah. can take. Yeah. So what about for someone who's uh, taken those steps they see God's change in their life, mm -hmm. and they are healing. Um, and uh, in your book, you mentioned kind of some of the radical steps of like, even maybe going so far as to cut off access to your bank account, get rid of a phone, just the seriousness of taking radical steps, and they have done those things. When could, does someone know they're mature enough to slowly introduce some of these things back into life? And what things do you think a porn addict should just be like, I can never reintroduce that into my life. So I'll say something that uh, might be a little bit shocking. I would say there's probably nothing that a person who's been addicted to porn could say. There prob there's probably nothing that you would say that can never be reintroduced into mm -hmm. my life. Just because that Jesus changes people so that you really do want different things. Uh, you really can be a different kind of person. Now, the question is how long? Uh, that, and that's the specific question you're asking. Okay, so, so, I mean, no matter how addicted you are, you could one day have a cell phone again. I mean, no matter how addicted you are, you could one day have a lot more freedom with your computer than you've got right now. Um, so I don't know that I would say there's anything that means you can never have that. Uh, in terms of when you get it back, there is no way uh, to answer that in a canned way. That is That has to be determined in the context of relationship. And so this is a subjective decision that you're making with the person that you're talking to really closely um, where we're going, hey, how much clean time do I have? How honest am I being? Uh, this is where a person who's got godly sorrow and really wants to be different, this is where I'm also not just leaving it up to the decision of the accountability partner, but like knowing my own heart, like I don't think, like you might think it's the right time for me to have that. I'm telling you, I don't think it's the right time for me to have that. If you're married, a lot of this is what your spouse is comfortable with. Uh, if um, uh, if your spouse is uncomfortable with the return uh, of something that has been a source of temptation in the past, it's probably not the right time. And even if it is, it's not easily the right time. That would be something where, first of all, you should never fight for that. The person who's been the problem should never fight for that. But maybe the accountability partner, the person helping you guys would have some wisdom that could help your spouse uh, uh, sort that out. Um, so I think it's a case-specific decision that is uh, made with an abundance of caution, care, and inside the context of counsel. Uh, the last thing I would say is, so, and I'll just speak autobiographically. I, I, I really, I don't remember, I, I tried a couple of weeks ago to remember the last time I looked at pornography, and I just don't remember when it was. It's been too long ago. If you had told me when I was 18 that I would 
live my adult life and I would not be looking at pornography and I would not want pornography, I would have thought you were crazy. I mean, particularly at 13, I would have thought you were stupid if I didn't want that. I, th I thought it was a good and you want to get it if you can, but just people are prudes and they're going to hound you, so you got to keep it covered up. Um, well, I mean, my adult life has not been defined by that. It has not included that. And so I just don't remember uh, the last time I did. But as true as that is, uh, my iPhone uh, has accountability software on it. All of my electronic devices have uh, accountability on them. Um, and that is because I am a husband, I am a father, uh, I am a pastor. Honestly, I just don't have anything to hide. And I don't ever want in a weak moment, in a tempting moment, I mean, anybody can get an email that's provocative. Anybody can have something come up on their news feed that awakens lust in your heart. I don't want to have an off moment where I've got the freedom to do that. And honestly, on the other side of it, I want anybody who would make an accusation against me, I want to be able to say, let me tell you what, uh, everything I've got is locked up tight as a drum. Uh, there are four people or two, I forget how many, two or three or four people at any given point in my life that get every single thing I'm looking at on the internet, that get screenshots of what's happening on my phone. And if you got a question, you can ask them. So, so even though I would say that there's probably not anything that you can never have again, I just don't think it's wise um, for most adults, and particularly for most adult men, to have the ability to have electronic devices that are completely unprotected. I just don't think that's wise. Right. Is it always wrong? I'm not saying that, but I wouldn't do it. Right. That makes sense. It, you were just kind of touching on accountability too. Could you just explain, uh, this is kind of switching to a slightly different topic now, mm -hmm. um, what is accountability? And then kind of maybe even going by that with what's good accountability look like and what's bad accountability look like? Mm -hmm. um, and then I just got some follow-up, but kind of like how do you get into good accountability if you don't have any? Yeah. So accountability is the acknowledgement in my own heart that I'm an idiot if I try to live the Christian life on my own. It's the acknowledgement in my own soul that I am stupid and a fool if I think I can solve the most complicated problems I've got on my own. I say that because there, I'm just, there are people listening to this, and they're going, okay, I feel guilty. I know I shouldn't be looking at pornography, and I'm going to figure it out. I'm just, I'm gonna, now I mean it. The last time really, really was the last time, and now I'm going to figure it out. And you're a fool. It's not the way it works. God isn't going to change you by protecting your pride. He's just not going to do it. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And so accountability is the acknowledgement of my own heart that I cannot do this, do this on my own. I can't live the Christian life by myself. And I need to find people who I can humble myself in front of and ask for help and let them know where I'm struggling. That's what accountability is. Uh, good accountability uh, happens with people who uh, know more about the Bible than you do, uh, with people who know more about Jesus than you do, uh, who know more about the Bible and sin than you do. So it happens with somebody who is wiser. Uh, good accountability is something that happens regularly. It's not a one-off or a once every six month kind of thing. You need to get into a regular habit of talking with somebody. Um, good accountability is honest. Good heavens. You can meet with the wisest Christian alive every morning. And if you're not honest with them, it's not going to help. And so uh, that's what good accountability is and bad accountability is the opposite. I'm just not going to do it. I'm going to meet with somebody who's at the same place I am in my struggle or who is behind me. Uh, I'm going to meet irregularly and I'm going to not tell them where the struggle is. I mean, you're never going to, you can call that accountability if you want, but it's never going to help. Right. Do you think a good accountability can look like multiple people with one person who's kind of discipling and mentoring? Mm -hmm. I guess what, what room is there for there to be different kinds of accountability relationships? Or do you think there is one, this is much more effective? Sure. The continuum is, so on Sunday morning, I'm going to preach to uh, a room full of people. And I'm going to have to give general truth to a general audience. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not, nobody's going to confuse that with accountability. Um, the other end of the continuum is a one-on-one -on -one conversation. 
Right. When you understand that continuum, you're going to understand that every person you add to the meeting is going to dilute uh, the the conversation a little bit. That's not. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Right. I'm just saying at some point you get to a number where this isn't accountability anymore. This is a small group, uh, and this isn't a small group anymore. This is like a discipleship class. And this isn't a discipleship class anymore. This is just church on Sunday. Like, so I'm not going to say that the numbers aren't important, um, but it can be very, very effective to have like one wiser person uh, discipling one, two, three, four, five, uh, probably after you get past the that three, four, five mark, you probably are getting a group that's so diluted, every individual isn't going to get the close attention that they really need. So I would say uh, the the larger the group, the more beneficial it is for people who are a little bit further along. And the more you're struggling, the more intense the struggle, the more helpful it is to have the group be as small as possible. Right. One question we got uh, specifically from someone anonymously was, what do I do if there are no people that I can think of mm-hmm. to hold me accountable, but I need that? Mm-hmm. Like, what what would you recommend for someone in that situation? Okay, so uh, if that is the case, um, and and I would want to ask that person, like, okay, what do you mean that you can think of? Are right. you are we having a preference problem? You know, there's because most people are going to live. Um, most people are going to live where there's somebody. I mean, there's somebody, but uh, I, I can imagine a situation where, gosh, I'm looking around and I just can't find anybody. So uh, just not able to ask the question, I would say if you really can't, uh, if you can't think of anybody, um, then maybe ask another person if they can. So this is different. I'm not asking you to be my accountability partner. I'm asking you to help me come up with ideas. So an obvious person at that point would be a pastor. Hopefully this person has a pastor and they go to the pastor and say, hey, can you can you think of anybody? Um, if if you can't find anybody that way, then then there's phone calls, there's texts, and so you can phone a friend, you can text a friend, and say, hey, could we meet every week over the phone? Could we meet meet every week over Facetime? Like whatever it is, um, it would it would be an incredibly strange situation uh, where somebody who has access to an ongoing problem with pornography would not also have access to live life openly and honestly with another Christian. Right. Do you think that a wife could, or a husband of either spouse struggling, could be an accountability partner or? Not in the intense, uh, close way. So, um, uh, so I don't mean it in a general way where, you know, uh, you know a spouse is the one who is the one who's in charge of the passwords on the computers and on the, you know, on our television, if you want to watch a movie, you've got to put in the code. Right. Uh, and, you know, it could be that if if you've got a situation in your marriage where you don't know the code and your spouse does, that your spouse could be the one who knows. But that would not be accountability in the strict sense. Accountability in the strict sense, in general terms, it should not be your spouse. And the reason is because your spouse just needs to be freed up to be your spouse. It is corrosive of the marital relationship for your spouse to have to be figuring out how to have communication with you and a sexual relationship with you and how to have fun with you and also looking at your internet reports. Like it's just not, it's just not conducive. So, uh, I mean, if you have to do it in a pinch, again, somebody's better than nobody. Uh, but in almost every, in fact, I'm not aware of a scenario where the only option somebody had was their spouse. And so in, that, in, in every normal scenario, spouse shouldn't be close accountability partner. Right. No, that's, that's really helpful. This is a question kind of connected on this that I just, I loved it. I want to actually read it directly because it's so good. Okay. Uh, in Song of Solomon's, the, main, the man genuinely sees his bride as the most beautiful woman on planet bar none. How do we grow in seeing our wives this way? And then kind of specifically in the topic of pornography. And maybe I could also just add, uh, how can wives see their husbands in this kind of light as well? Yeah. I just think it's such an honest question. No, it's, it's a great question. In Proverbs chapter five, so he's talking about Song of Solomon. In Proverbs chapter five, uh, 
the counsel is uh, to delight yourself in the wife of your youth and to let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. So that's what the Bible says. So what that means is that is a command of God. So God is commanding us. He's doing it in a different way in Song of Solomon. But there's this command that I need to love and sexually desire the wife that God gave me. The good news for that is that since it's God's command, God in His grace is going to give us the power to do it. So what that means is if you pray, God, I want to do this. Will you help me? He will. Uh, again, that might not be a prayer that He answers in the first 10 seconds, but it will be uh, a prayer that He for sure answers over the, over the cycle of prayer uh, and in the course of your marriage. So. Just in general terms, we pray, Lord, help me to do Proverbs 5. Help me to do Song of Solomon. Help me to do this. And he will answer that prayer. One of the reasons marriages don't work where pornography is a problem is because pornography makes that problem. You're delighting yourself in another man's wife. You're delighting yourself in the breasts of another woman instead of your wife, as God says. So you can't. You are you're actively rupturing uh, the, uh, the command and the standard. Um, and so you've got to get away from that. But um, what I would say is what marriage does is it gives us the put on of the put off of lust. So uh, in, in Colossians and Ephesians that talks about these, when you want to change, there's not just the bad things that you stop doing, there's the good things that you start doing. Well, when you're married, the put off is pornography, it's lust, it's other women, it's other men. But the put on is your spouse. And so, um, uh, so if you are walking down the street and you see a hunky guy coming towards you or a really good looking woman uh, coming towards you and you're like, you're tempted to lust. Well, the put off is, Lord, not that, not that. The put on is Proverbs 5. Lord, help me to delight myself in my wife or my husband of my youth. Um, here's the thing. When you're married, you get to think, it's not wrong for you to think with sexual longing about the private parts of your spouse. And so you can think about um, the private parts of your spouse. You can think about the activities that you engage in in the marriage bed that you find fun and enjoyable and delightful. Uh, and I'm telling you, if you ask God to forgive you of lust and ask God to fuel you with desire for that, I'm telling you, you will find yourself highly encouraged about being with your spouse. And uh, one of the things about my, again, just in, in my adult life, the only woman I see naked is my wife. Uh, and so this is the way it's supposed to work. The way it's supposed to work, and we lived in this sexualized society where you can see anybody's body parts anywhere you want. But in God's world, the only person whose body parts you're supposed to see uncovered are supposed to be your wife, and so are supposed to be your husband. And so when that happens uh, over the course of years, you won't even know anything else to desire. It'll just be that, and that's a kind, a kind grace of um, of the Lord. So, so I would say if you can uh, uh, put off desire for other people and put on desire for your spouse. Um, there's there's a real blessing in that. That's that's so helpful. We uh, we we end all these podcasts with just kind of asking, can you give a hopeful word, a word of encouragement, and uh, or just practical things that you want to leave people with now as just a closing closing thoughts. You know, it, the most helpful thing that I can say is that um, God loves you. I mean, this is this is First John four eight and nine. Uh, God is love, and by this we know the love of God that He gave His Son Jesus Christ. I mean, God loves you. God sent His Son Jesus to pay for your sins. God sent His Son Jesus to empower your righteousness. God is love. He is going to do this for you. You can have great confidence in the loving, compassionate, good character of God uh, that He is going to turn your heart. He is going to turn your desires and forever. And I mean, 
endless eternities stacked one right after the other, your life will be defined by righteousness and purity and holiness and goodness because God loves you and sent his son Jesus for you. So you can have confidence in that and this is all going to work out in the end. Thank you for joining me on this. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this podcast conversation. To learn more about the full-length teaching documentary, Into the Light, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and our website at Into the Light Documentary. These are all crowdfunded resources for churches and families like yours. So if you find this content valuable, please consider supporting us at givesendgo.com slash into the light. We love doing these podcasts because they are honest and meaningful conversations. If you enjoyed this discussion, you may also like my podcast, Chats Under the Sun. I have similar conversations with Christians from all walks of life. You can find Chats Under the Sun on Spotify and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.